let's throw out the notion of meditation. Let's do away with that as a concept because it's too, it's too polluted. We have too much of an idea of what it is, how to do it, and where it leads. Instead, let's just look at our time initially as an experiment or an adventure, if you like. And so we can bring to our initial approach a kind of scientific mind. But the scientific mind that we're working with is not the scientific mind of rigid concepts, notions, or definitions and boundaries. It's the scientific mind that exists in one who is truly experimenting. One who is truly interested in setting out on a venture into the unknown to discover what's there. Of course, we might have our many theories or hypotheses, our many expected outcomes, the ones we've read about, heard about, or even experienced ourselves before. But I would like to invite you instead to be more of a pioneer more one who is traversing territory that has previously been unseen or unknown. So you don't really know what you're going to find. And you don't really know what's going to happen or what should happen. But you can be curious. You can wonder. And that brings us to just the right kind of mindset. So forget about meditation as something you're doing to achieve some kind of end like peace or quiet mind or enlightenment. Look at this as just a time for coming into accord with what is most real and most true in you. recognize that to come into accord is not action. It's not doing. Not yet. A way of being. When you know within yourself, I am here. that be the charm in your practice. I am here.
charm is what takes your focus. Makes you charming. Leaves you charmed. Whatever remnants or residues remain, remaining over from your past, will quickly wear themselves out, will quickly be exhausted if you stay charmed. charm is your love, your way of adoring yourself, adoring this moment. So we could almost call this an experiment in adoration. See what happens when you grow quiet and you begin to adore. Anything and everything that you find. The motorcycle, the child laughing, your own disgruntled attitude, whatever it may be. adoration, you realize you're not here to be a slave. Not to your desires, not to your fears, not to your past identities, not to anything you've been taught or told. So the adoration comes with a, a taste of freedom and openness and possibility. your inner being like an ember which is fanned, which is breathed onto by your adoration. So it grows bright, grows hot, grows intense. And within this adoration, what you hear, see, smell, taste, touch, just becomes song, becomes your delight, becomes what you can marvel at. <laughs> 
could take even our laziest, most cynical, most dull, most numb components of ourselves and like an ember that is sort of fading, just fan that ember right into a brighter heat. Let it extinguish itself. So in our practice, we're not busy keeping anything out. That's not our business. We're busy welcoming everything in, including into the vicinity of our adoration, everything. We could be almost as a hound looking for anything unresolved in us, anything unloved, unhealed, finding our way to adore that. Our anger, our victimizations, real or imagined. our self-esteem. Our dashed hopes. This adoration isn't your efforts, it's not your making. It's what flows from you when you realize I am here. And we just stop wasting our time with nonsense. We, stay, we stop wasting our breath 
and life on what no longer makes sense to our mind. When you surround anything with your adoration, you become adorable. This is our task. This is our experiment. You become a door. Through which life is looking. What life sees, it loves. Life sees your wound, it doesn't cringe, it loves. And we just go on allowing this adoration to replace everything we've learned to fear. curious, we can find a way to adore even the most difficult heartbreaks, periods of lack. And that adoration becomes a transforming eye.
in that new way of adoration, everything that you know of your old experience, your habitual mind, is going to find conclusion. The habitual mind simply doesn't have the capacity to adore. We might feel at the outset that there's some limit to how much we could adore, how much love we could actually lend. And so our experiment would also entail seeing just where this well runs dry, if it runs dry at all. to see that we've been living and operating as though we only have so much love to give or so much adoration to spread. So we limit it to those close to us or those who share our beliefs. Or those that we find likable. And these friends are those people we surround ourselves with, but also the internal landscape of friends. In both our outer and inner atmosphere, we have developed enemies simply because we've refused to adore those people, those emotions, those thoughts, those energies in the body. Christ says, love your enemies as yourself. Adore. When you adore your enemies, you'll see that they're simply not acting in their right mind. But your adoration is your right mind. To be in your right mind. Simple. I am here. I am available. I adore.
and just watch what lights up in you. Just watch what lights up in the other. Don't think of your adoration as a slogan you can wear. It's for your eyes. It's for your smile. It's for your touch. Think of it more as the clothing you wear, the lens through which you look. What charges, what energizes your touch? And this adoration will replenish itself through your activity, through giving it, through giving it you have more of it. When we break from this quieter form to engaging with each other, we might just visit, check in to see what might be making it difficult to be in our right mind. and bring some kind of light, some kind of illumination to that matter. If we are in our right mind, there's many ways that this adoration can be shared or displayed or expressed. And so it would be an invitation as we change forms to give voice or expression.
what we do when we do this, when we call ourselves to expression is not, it's very intentional. But it's not, it's not an intention fueled by our habitual experience. For example, our habitual experience may be one of doubt. So to give voice to doubt, to voice it, to articulate it, to express it, to believe it, is not quite the expression, not the same as what comes when we are really here. So in a sense, our opportunity in expression is to express what is really real and what is truly true in us in the form of language, touch, look, gestures. And in doing so, further uh, erasing the habits that keep us tied to our sense of personality, our persona. The fanning of the ember, if you will. That each true truth spoken, each real gesture that's expressed becomes one more way of quickening this old habit of self into extinction. is most usual when we interact or speak. We did a little experiment with this in class, yoga. To call to the forefront right away our persona, remember meaning mask, to do the work for us of relating, engaging, communicating and expressing. But our persona expresses and communicates what is not us in the hopes of expressing what really is us. And so a confusion happens. We are always, true to word, misrepresenting ourselves. So when and if we express, when, not if, when we express ourselves, it will be the expression which is a teaching, a way of teaching ourselves to be real, to be true. That's what expression is for, to learn more fully how to be real. How to be true. It seems unlikely to us that we could so suddenly break up with our past. It seems so unlikely that we could be walking in a certain direction and suddenly turn. We would wonder inside of ourselves, how would I sustain that? How would I sustain this sudden turn from being who I have been to being who I really am. And we would, in that very moment, we would find it such, an, such a daunting, overwhelming task that we would tell ourselves, you know what? Not yet. Not yet. 
I'm not ready for that daunting task. But what our true availability, what, what would be said when we say, I am here, is I'm absolutely ready. And along the way, we'll have to forget about getting it right. We'll have to forget about perfection. We'll have to forget about ideologies or forms that it has taken before. Because nobody can say, when you are available, when I am available, nobody can say, how or when or why that moves the way it does. If you sense that that invites chaos into your experience, then smile and nod and say, yep. But it's a most necessary kind of chaos. It's the chaos that will undo and unravel your persona. Because the persona has very clear rules that it follows, very clear guidelines about what it is and what it isn't, how it will act and how it won't. And we're too big for that. We're too grown up for that. We're too majestic for that. What do you have to say? With this knowing I am here, it's really just like getting a good chiropractic adjustment, you know, just like getting an alignment where something we got used to being out of place. We got so used to it being out of place that we started to believe it was everything was as it was supposed to be. And we started to believe that the back pain that we had was actually just how things are. Until this adjustment happens and then it suddenly dawns on us, whoa, that was a lot of pain. <laughs> things must have really been askew. Now we can't adjust ourselves, but we can be willing to be adjusted. The problem with adjusting ourselves is this. All the tools we've used to build the structure we've built are the same tools we'll use to adjust it. So whatever ways we might reorganize the structure of our persona, we turn out with the same basic model. You know? It's like if we built a structure with plywood we could rearrange the plywood, we could adjust it all, but we would still end up with a structure made of plywood. <laughs> you know, 
and it would be just as flimsy and just as cheap as it was originally. And that's what happens so often in spirituality. Spiritual teachings or methods are taught to rearrange your plywood shack, you know? So we end up with a more colorful persona, a more enticing persona, a more exciting persona. But as is the result with every persona, finally we meet its unreality. Finally, it's just not real. So it feels eventually empty and hollow, kind of a husk, balloon-like, you know, full of air. And every persona that we try on, I mean, think of the many personas. I don't know if you're like me, but I've tried on many personas in my life. Smart persona, strong persona, sexy persona, all sorts of different personas, you know. You try on different ways of being and with the kind of basic premise of maybe this will work, right? Maybe if I'm smart, that'll work. Maybe if I'm funny, that will work. And they're all noble attempts. I mean, we're, all of them are in service of really trying to discover who we really are. But finally, each and every one of them, as they become molds, masks, they just reveal themselves to be sort of lacking, you know? And some personas get really good feedback from the environment. You know, if you craft a persona in a certain way, in a certain environment, you can get a lot of congratulations for it. And that will give you the feeling that your persona is on, that it's, that it's right, that it's working, you know? If you're a Blazers fan by persona and you hang out with Blazers fans, you'll get a knock, you'll get a hit. You'll get high a little bit. And it'll feel in that high like something has gone right. And that will be the moment where everything has gone most wrong. People sometimes come and when I'm talking with them, they'll say, um, I feel like something's off in my life. I feel like it's not working Right, like things aren't flowing. And I usually congratulate them because it usually means that they're beginning to operate, uh, what's the right word? Against their persona. Because oftentimes when people perceive that things are working out right for them, it's because some part of their persona is getting cheered along, you know. And that feels good. But it feels, it feels us good right into our own confusion. You know? Because take, for example, you get a little congratulations for being witty. And you start to thrive on that a little bit until you make a witty comment that gets no response. And then it feels flat. And then it feels empty. You know? I'm trying to play with kind of silly, ordinary examples here, but we all have our own, our own ways. If we arrive with, I am here, then we're just interested in being real and true. And real and true, not according to any persona, not according to any mask we've learned to wear. I used to think that being unique, being really unique, was a quality of authenticity, and authenticity was a quality of really being here. And then I discovered over time that you can't really be unique at all, not as, not as a persona anyway, because every persona is somehow a reflection of something learned, you know? Like we have in a, the uh, iconoclast or the uh, nonconformist movements, we have a whole lot of people who are non-conforming in the same way together. <laughs> you know? Just a different model of the same thing. Right? So to be in a state of non-conformity, and let's look at what that word means, non-conform. Okay? Con is a word meaning with, 
form, right? So you're not with form. You're not with the form things are taking. In other words, there's something in us so free of the established forms that are taking place, right? Whatever model, whatever form, whatever riverbed, whatever rut, whatever channel things seem to be moving in, we can rest assured that I am here, I am, is not moving through any of those channels. So it's the perfect nonconformity. Not in opposition to things, not in opposition to life, but in its insistence, in our insistence in being real, in being true. Whether that gets us applause or criticism, you know? Can you imagine if Martin Luther King or Jesus just wanted applause? You know? Just wanted people to clap and say, we approve of what you're doing. We get nowhere that way. That doesn't mean we have to become revolutionaries. We do have to become revolutionaries, but not in any external way. Just revolutionize this experience of ourselves. When I was in Hawaii writing my one-man show, it was my first pass, and I was living with a guy who was a stand-up comedian, and he gave me a bunch of videos to watch of other stand-up comedians, and that was kind of influencing me, and I was writing funny stuff about my childhood, and then I had a dream, and in the dream it was my first night of the one-man show, and the makeup artist did my face, and then I'm headed to the entrance to go out on stage and the director stops me and says, what did the makeup artist do? That's not for this show. And they hand me a mirror and I look and it's the face of a clown. And I, they said they had to scrub that off for me to do my proper show. Yep. And that's a subtle message. It's perfect, isn't it? It's perfect. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm a, um, I guess what you would call a recovering black and white thinker. <laughs> <laughs> and so listening to you talk this morning, I noticed that impulse to declare war on my personas comes mm. up. Yeah. Sort of the warring persona? The warring yeah, persona that wants the war, persona, right? that the, wants the war against the other personas? Persona industrial complex. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, and I know that declaring war on things hasn't worked well for me, but what is the alternative with those personas? Adoration. Which is sort of neutral, is that? It doesn't mean I identify. So don't get rid of them. Don't throw them out of the bathwater, right? But, well, um, truly, I would say you can't get rid of them because they don't exist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is part of the problem of going to war with them, yeah. is that we end up... We end ourselves in a, in a fight with shadows, yeah. You know, we end ourselves in an imaginary battle. And the trouble with an imaginary battle is it never ends. You can't win it. Um, so you're, you're certainly right. No war needed. War is antithetical to this. Uh, seeing the warring persona as an actual persona. And in... Adoration, you could say, it, 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 if, neutral, if neutral is soil, adoration is the flower that comes out of it. So out of our neutrality will arise the adoration. So adoration being more of like a, a fragrance. The, awareness itself is neutral. So when awareness looks on a persona, it doesn't try to indulge it. It doesn't try to get rid of it. It just sees it as it is. Right? That's the neutrality of awareness. But with the adoration, there is some kind of understanding that comes in around what that persona is trying to achieve. And that becomes the really rich material for this flowering. Because, for example, let's say 
let's say that my, my neutral awareness looks in on a jealous persona. There's a, a moment of jealousy of some kind. If it can remain, well, it is neutral. If we adhere to the neutrality of awareness, that jealousy is just seen as, as kind of an event, just a, a bubble in the, in the scheme of things, right? But as it's leaned closer into, that's the adoration, we start to see that that jealousy is arising from some kind of feeling of that person has more than I do, or they are more than I am. And so we start to find an understanding that this jealousy is arising out of some feeling of lack. And so the adoration is the love of the awareness coming in and surrounding that lack, you know, filling it in a way, you know, where there seems to be a lack, it's filling in. And so that's what we would refer to as a healing. There's a healing that goes on. But you're right, it starts with neutrality. It starts with the dropping of the judgment, dropping of the war, dropping of the indulgence, whatever it is that we're used to doing with those personas when they arise. And we can rest assured that we don't know this until we look in retrospect. It's not as though we're trading one persona for another. That's the trouble that a lot of people get into, is they're going to put aside their devilish persona and put on their spiritual persona. And a lot, of, a lot of us get ourselves confused doing that, thinking, oh, this is really me. But you find out that's not really you at all, right? And um, while going to war with our personas doesn't work, so does, neither does, um, continuing to try new ones, you know? And that's what our identity crisis will do. It's like, Okay, I'm not that, maybe I'm this. Okay, no, I'm not that, maybe I'm this. Okay, I'm not that, maybe I'm this. Not everybody struggles with that. Only those who developed identity crisis in their life due to certain circumstances they grew up around. But it can happen, you know, it can happen that we're looking for who we are. We want to know who we are. And we're convinced that we're going to find that through activating some kind of persona, you know. And we just try them on one after another in increasing subtlety until it's really clear to us none of these are going to work. They're not going to work. But it's when we arrive at that understanding, it's in a, from a very neutral and kind of loving awareness of this isn't working. Yeah, yeah. I look at I look at identity crisis and and spiritual path as kind of the same thing. <laughs> because the whole thing in the end what we arrive at is the true knowing of what we really are. And that's our true identity. Along the way we learn many lessons about what we're not. In a sense we we could say that the only way to arrive at the true knowing of who you are is by recognizing everything you're not. You know? If, I, if we use this room as an analogy, if I look at you and say, I'm not you, 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 I must be the other thing in the room that's not you. Right? That's on the personality level, but you get the idea. right? We look at all these masks, so I must not be this. And how do we know the difference between a mask and what is real? A mask is always bound by a certain law, which is impermanence. Any mask is not always present. So whatever, whatever in you that you recognize as sometimes there and sometimes not is a mask. If you think that your presence is sometimes here and sometimes not, it's not presence that you're talking about. It's some form of a mask. Presence, the presence that we are, is always the here and now experience. Always. Always, 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 always. Never not that. <laughs> so when we identify ourselves with something that is impermanent or passing, something that's there a little while and then passes on, it's some form of a mask. It might be a good mask. I'm not saying the mask is a bad thing, necessarily. It might feel good. But if it passes... 
it can't be real. Because we define real as that which is always present, that which is always here. You know what I mean? So moods and attitudes and ways of being, all those things that rise up in us from time to time and pass in us, they're not what's real. So we can begin to dismiss those things. Not dismiss them violently, like I'm going to get rid of this, but dismiss it as, oh, that's not what's always here. So that can't be real. Yeah, that can be one of the forms it takes, both in a somewhat positive way and somewhat negative way. You know, well, yeah, that's I got that. And then when you, as you were saying it, I got the other side of it, which is, you know, um, uh, the way we might put on a display for someone else to look a certain way, and then you know, but yeah, the positive too, the acting as if. Mm -hmm. In which case, you know, what we realize is the mask is eventually, in that way, the mask is almost something that just bleeds right into your real face. You know, that's why we talk about in meditation, adoring. Because you could say adoring is a kind of mask. But if you wear it close to your skin, it'll just sort of seep in. Because adoring is one of those true um, movements of the soul, if you will. difficult thing to talk about here because we can't imitate our true nature. It won't work. It won't work to imitate it, but we can activate it in us. If that makes sense. People try to imitate true nature by being saintly. You know? By being pious and good and, and nice and friendly all the time. It's better than being a, you know, a hot mess, I guess, but it's not totally real. Uh, and that imitation will eventually reveal itself in some way as some kind of mistake, some kind of hypocrisy or fraudulence or something. But if we endeavor to truly exhibit our most loving self, our most peaceful self, it's natural that we'll just find our way right into our true nature. You know? What's your thought on if people say fake it till you make it? That's kind of what I'm getting at here. The thing that fakes it will fake it so well that it will fake itself out of existence. In other words, let's say that we fake, fake it till we make it with love. Right. Let's just use love. We'll fake it and fake it and fake it until we realize that the love that we're faking is not totally real because we're faking it. When that realization dawns, love will become real. So in a way, the, the faking it uh, is an exhaustion process. It, it brings us to the real thing. That's what our personas do as well. That eventually we tire of every persona that we try on until we're brought to our real face our true face. So we can, if we want to look at it in this way, we can look at it very positively as it all serves a very good purpose in bringing us back to ourselves, bringing us home to ourselves. So, so if we're faking it, there's less opportunity in my mind to get to the place of realizing, oh wait, there's something there I need, I want to adore. There's a, there's a lack that I'm compensating for. Sure. And let me see that and let me open up my heart to adore mm -hmm. rather than in that faking place, I'm not tracking so much what's under it. Right. And that's what's eventually going to reveal itself is that this, this faking is covering there's up a, a hole. Point yeah. yeah. If I were really in touch with the real in me, I wouldn't need to fake it. And that becomes clear to us over time. Yeah. 
we can almost look at all spiritual practice as some form of faking it, one form or another. Faking it, but with the underlying joke of uh, making it, but not in the way you thought. (laughs) Making it through exhaustion. Making it through the unlearning rather than the acquisition, rather than the progression. We achieve enlightenment despite ourselves. (laughs) What else? Anything else out there ringing, resonating? Where does it, it come from? Is that in yoga they use the phrase "ador"? I mean, I know the word. Where, where does it, it come has from? Special energy. It has a special energy. Yeah. It it uh, it blossomed today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, two months ago, I was sitting with a woman who was on hospice and she was close to death and she stopped talking and I was rubbing her feet with a client of mine and I said, Marilyn, you know I adore you. Mm. And her face, eyes lit, opened up and she said, that's a word only for God. Okay. Don't adore people. She's a strict Catholic and I didn't really get it till now I thought, that's right, it's only for God. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that's precious. I adore. That's precious. I'm going to use it for uh, she missed who you were looking at then. Uh, that's so. That's precious. Yeah, it is only for God. In fact, nothing but God can be adored. It's it. Whatever we think we're adoring, what we're, what we're actually adoring is God. Yeah. You know, when you fall in love with someone's face, it's not their face you've fallen in love with. When you fall in love with someone's music, it's not their music you've fallen in love with. When you fall in love with someone's poetry, it's not their poetry you've fallen in love with. Their poetry is dead. It's empty. It's forms written on paper. That's not what you love. You don't love forms written on paper, right? You love what it does inside of you. You love what it activates inside of you. Adoration is just that way of of seeing God in something or love, seeing life in you know, and the trick in it, I mentioned this in class, I'll repeat it again because some, at least one of us wasn't there, two of us, is the adoration is not something we gather up from the thing. It's not like waves of adoration are coming out of people or things to your eyes. When you look with adoring eyes, you make what you're seeing adorable. And we don't we don't recognize that we have that power because we're so convinced that the beauty and the adorableness are actually coming from the thing. And so we walk around kind of dumb, like, what's the next adorable thing that will show itself to me? What's the next beautiful thing that will show itself to it? And we walk around kind of hungry for beauty, not recognizing that all the while the beauty comes from your looking. It comes from the way you see. And then we're surrounded by beauty. We're surrounded by what's adorable. That's what I mean when I say, I am here. That's the purpose of this phrase. I am here. I am. Is I am here as that which makes all adorable, which makes everything love or beauty or power. As Rumi says, when you look for God, God is in the look of your eyes. You know? So adoration is a powerful, I don't even want to call it a practice, because their practice is too cheap. A better word for practice would be to make it real. To come into adoration is to make it real in the world you see. And like I said in class, you have to try it out. Just try it out. Don't take my word for it. Just try it out. See, sit on the bench outside, walk down the street, 
with adoring eyes looking at every face you see, every tree, every bird, and you just, you just be a witness to what happens when your adoring eyes are there. When you are, when you are in the I am here with adoring eyes, just watch what happens. Shall we commence with that? Great to spend this time with you. Namaste. 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 Namaste.